Well, Christ Church, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to Romans chapter 9 as we continue our exposition of the book of Romans and this subsection, God's Purpose of Election, part 5, uh, Sons of the Living God, Romans chapter 9. I do want to say um, that all of these sermons are on sermon audio. You can see in the back of the bulletin where you can find these. Uh, uh, sometimes people sort of drop in to, uh, I guess this is probably the middle of the series. I don't know. This is sermon number 89. Uh, and so there are a lot has come before this and a lot is being built upon in terms of the Apostle Paul's argumentation, particularly as we come to Romans chapter 9, a, a chapter that uh, is sometimes a hard pill for people to swallow who are uninitiated into the understanding of God's sovereignty and election and predestination, which is a, a biblical doctrine, and it's here. It's all over the Bible, and yet uh, uh, many have not properly understood this. And so uh, I would say listen to the previous messages in order to get caught up, uh, and hopefully it will help make even greater sense of what will be said uh, today. Uh, well, look with me at Romans chapter 9. Uh, this, this morning we're going to look at verses 19 through 29, but specifically looking at verses 24 through 29 as we dealt with some of the previous verses last time we were together. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Actually, let's begin in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word brings life and points us to Christ as the only hope of salvation. We pray, O oh Lord, that this morning you would convince our hearts even more of your greatness, your sovereignty in salvation, and that we would understand that salvation is indeed by grace alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The palace of Versailles, along with its surrounding gardens, is a sight to behold. Uh, the massive French chateau is located 12 miles west of Paris, France, and it started out as a relatively small 17th century hunting lodge for King Louis XIII. 
but it was later greatly expanded by King Louis XIV, the so-called Sun King. Uh, apparently, the Louvre uh, Palace was not big enough for him uh, or his ego, uh, and so he built Versailles. The Palace of Versailles has about a million square feet. I was thinking we needed to up our square footage of our church just a little bit after reading that. A million square feet with over 2,300 rooms. There are over 2,100 windows, over 1,200 chimneys, and no less than 67 staircases. The walls are covered in 17th and early 18th century paintings and sculptures, mostly with scenes related to uh, the mythical Greco-Roman gods, uh, French history, and uh, images of King Louis XIV himself, of course, in almost every room, it seems. There are five impressive chapels on site, but knowing the sordid history of the French royal court and what covers the walls of this ornate palace, there is little doubt that Versailles is a vast monument to the glory of man, especially to King Louis XIV. Indeed, he built this as a monument to glorify himself. But if we are honest, it's not just the French kings that make themselves the center of the universe and have a relatively small view of God and his word. We can be guilty of the same things, can't we? Thinking that God exists for us, that he exists to serve us and to do so on our terms, rather than that we exist for him and to serve him on his terms. Indeed, we are all naturally inclined to think that we are in charge, that we are in control, that we are the director, the producer, and the main star in our own life movie, and that God is a kind of supporting actor that exists to make us look good and to help us when we get into a little bit of trouble. And this small view of God and inflated view of ourselves can distort our view of salvation. It can greatly distort our understanding of the sovereignty of God, thinking that, yeah, God is sovereign and all that, but really, in the end, I am the one that ultimately has the control. Of course, as you grow older, life teaches you that you are not in control at all. But as we come to God's word in Romans 9, we are confronted with, as I've mentioned before, a kind of big God theology. We are confronted with a theology that exalts God as the absolute sovereign of the universe who does all things, including salvation, according to his divine will and purpose. And a theology that puts man in his place. In fact, we see a little bit of that here in Romans 9, don't we? In terms of this answer to the question, uh, is God unjust? Who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? Who are you? We, we get a sense of this, that when you have a big God theology, man is put in his place as a wretched sinner whose greatest need is God's saving mercy and compassion in Jesus Christ. God is the potter. And we are the clay, not the other way around. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is ultimately something that God decrees that He does and not us. 
This means that salvation is according to the sovereign grace of God in Christ and not according to human works. It is not salvation by cooperation. It is not redemption by cooperation. It is salvation according to promise. Salvation according to grace and not according to one's national identity or family background. Salvation is according to God's sovereign mercy and not according to human strivings. It is by grace. It is through faith, which is a gift of God. And it is in Jesus Christ. That's the lesson that the Apostle Paul has been teaching us from Romans chapter 9, especially as it relates to his own countrymen, the Jews, because really that's what's going on here, isn't it? In Romans chapter 8, Paul is declaring these wonderful truths that nothing can separate us from the love of God, not trials or tribulations or life or death or anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in chapter 9, he begins lamenting that his own countrymen, the Jews, do not believe. And so the question that Paul is answering that he knows is arising in the hearts of his countrymen is, is God's promise then devoid? Is it, is, it, is it untrue? Has God's promise failed? Has his word failed? Is he unjust? He's, he's made these covenant promises to the people of Israel. Now you're saying that you're lamenting over their unbelief and that they're cut off from God. So how does this make sense? If, if, if we can never be separated from God's love, how is it here that Israel is somehow separated from God's love. And Paul is explaining here that salvation is in Jesus Christ and they are rejecting Jesus Christ. And ultimately, salvation is a work of the sovereign God. And we have seen this set forth over and over again in Romans chapter 9. They were putting, the Israelites were, the Jews, were putting their salvation hope in their Jewish identity and in their spiritual privileges, and in their good works. They believed that simply being recipients of God's covenant promises, and simply being the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and simply possessing the law of Moses, put them in a right relationship with God. But Paul makes it clear that this is not the case at all, and he is sincerely burdened for his kinsmen as he makes this case. He is not a cold and callous theologian who is simply pointing his finger and scolding his own countrymen for not believing. He is mourning over their, their lostness. He wants them to come to know Christ. It's a wonderful beginning to a chapter that so many want to make uh, this kind of philosophical challenge, how to figure out how God is sovereign and man is responsible in his sin and how all this election stuff works together with these things. That is not the point of this text. The point is that Paul, rather, is mourning over his people. He wants them to be saved and he is helping everyone, both Jew and Gentile, to understand that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is ultimately that which God does in the life of a sinner, which makes it possible there's no possibility of salvation unless God is sovereign and He's working in this way. Because on our own, we are fallen and dead in our sin and incapable of loving and choosing God. We need His sovereign grace. And He gives it. You see, this 
view of the Jews is not unlike those today who trust in their family Christian heritage or their church membership or their past religious experiences or their good works to save them rather than God's grace in Christ. You see, this same misunderstanding that was happening amongst the Jews often happens in people today. I've seen it over and over again. I've heard it. It's hard to listen to someone, whether it's on a, on a bus or a train or a plane or, or, or wherever, uh, explain their relationship to God in terms of their own works, in terms of their own ethnicity, in, in terms of their own education or their family background, and not in Christ. Paul is showing in this section of Romans that the unbelief of the majority of the nation of Israel does not mean that God's word has failed and that he has somehow broken his covenant promises to them. Nor does it mean that God is unjust or unfair in any way. In fact, to infer such a thing is blasphemous. No, what we learn here is that ultimately God carries out his sovereign saving purposes through the mysterious work of election. God has compassion on some and leaves others in their rebellion and their sin. No one deserves salvation. Not one person. Due to humanity's universal depravity and sinful rebellion that Paul describes at the beginning of this letter, we all deserve judgment, but God does not give us all what we deserve. He shows mercy and grace according to to the sovereign purpose of election. He says to Moses, which is quoted here in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Salvation is of the Lord. Remember, God does not owe us salvation. He is not indebted to us. He could have left us all in our rebellion and sin, rebellion and sin that we want to be left in apart from his grace. But he doesn't leave us all there. He has mercy and grace on a number so great that it's beyond us. Beloved, here in Romans, we are again reminded that salvation is not grounded in our love and faithfulness to God, but in his love and faithfulness to us. In Jesus Christ. Salvation is all of divine grace and not of human works. We add nothing to the grounds of our salvation. We contribute nothing. Salvation is all of grace. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. If it was according to works, we would have something to boast about, a reason to see ourselves as superior to our unbelieving neighbor. But we cannot see things like this if we understand that salvation is by grace. And dear ones, please hear this. It is the doctrine of divine election that punctuates this point like nothing else, that salvation is by grace alone. Now, as we come to verses 24 through 29, we notice yet again the apostle's use of Old Testament texts to fortify his argument. You see, Paul isn't introducing new ideas here. This isn't, these aren't new concepts. Now, these things that Paul is speaking of are very much rooted in the Old Testament. 
to make these points clear about God's sovereign grace and to answer questions about God's faithfulness to Israel, Paul quotes no less than nine Old Testament texts in this chapter. Nine Old Testament texts. And so he does so first by quoting the prophet Isaiah. And this is point number one uh, as we consider this quote from Hosea. God's sovereign grace in Christ brings a glorious change in status. God's sovereign grace in Christ brings a glorious change in status. Now, there uh, is a phrase that's often repeated. Uh, I don't know who, uh, who gets uh, credit for uh, this phrase. I know Tim Keller has used it over the years. Um, and it's that we are much worse than we can ever imagine. Our sins, our, our corruption as human beings, it's much worse than we can ever imagine. And you may have a very low view of yourself, but trust me, it's never, never low enough. Our, our sins, they, they impact every area of our lives. The, the amount of times that we don't do the things that we should do, that we don't say the things that we should say, and we don't think the things that we should be thinking, think about that every day, how many times we don't do what we ought to do. Have we ever for one second loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved our neighbor as ourself? Think of the amount of times we transgress the law of God, saying things we shouldn't say, doing things we shouldn't do, thinking things we shouldn't think. Our sins are like a mountain. We are much worse than we could ever imagine, but there is... Something else that we can say as those who believe the gospel, that God's grace is better than we can ever imagine. God's grace is better than we can ever imagine. And it's the more that we grow in Christ that we recognize the true sinful states of our hearts and we see the greatness and the glory and the lavishness of God's, God's grace. And here, uh, Paul quotes Hosea. And if you've ever studied Hosea, you'll know the depths of the sin of mankind and the glorious heights of God's amazing grace in the gospel. Look with me again at verses 24 through 26. Paul writes, Even us whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Now, the first thing we should notice here is that Paul uh, quotes Hosea and then Isaiah to prove his words in verse 24, that God has savingly called both Jews and what? Gentiles, not just Jews, but Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. And while Hosea was originally written to a very rebellious and idolatrous Israel, and it says so in the first few verses of Hosea, I believe it's Hosea 1.6, that this message is for Israel, we see here that the application of Hosea is broadened to include the Gentiles. And Paul is not wrong in making this application. Hosea 
originally prophesied to the northern kingdom of Israel in the 8th century B.C. His message is one of the most moving in the Old Testament. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Israel had been growing in ease and prosperity, making alliances with pagan nations. And along the way, they had grown to embrace gross idolatry and rebellion against God. They were imitating the false and idolatrous religions of their pagan neighbors like Assyria, and they were breaking covenant with God. God symbolically divorced Israel because, as it states in Hosea 2.4, they were children of whoredom, children of whoredom. In chapter 2, verse 13, God says this, quote, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Now just pause for a moment and, and think about this. This would be equivalent to us, perhaps before or after or during this worship service, lighting candles to false deities, sacrificing our children to false gods, doing things that are wicked and idolatrous with one another as a church and, 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 and before God. This is what was happening in, in Israel. But despite Israel's great sin against the Lord, despite their wicked idolatries and spiritual whoredom, God would not utterly forsake them. He would not forget his covenant promise. John Calvin writes this, quote, It behooved God to be ever mindful of his promise so as to manifest his mercy in the midst of the severest judgments, end quote. And to underscore or to illustrate this point, God would command his prophet Isaiah to marry a woman named Gomer. Now, that is a strange name to our ears for a woman because we all watched Gomer Pyle growing up, right? Um, some of you did, anyway. It's a, it, it's, it's a woman named Gomer who was to be taken by Hosea as his wife, knowing that she would be untrue to him. And not just untrue to him, but to give herself to many men in whoredom and conceive children of whoredom. She would have three children. And the names of these children would all be representative of how God would now relate to his people who were whoring after other gods and living in wretched rebellion. Two of these children are referred to in Romans chapter 9. The names of the children are representative, again, of Israel's sin and God's judgment upon them. Uh, the first name is Lo-Ami, or Not My People. This is the name of one of her sons, Lo-Ami, which means Not My People. Lo-Ruhama, the daughter is named not my loved one. That's what that means. So two of the three children are named here, meaning not my people and not my loved one. And so what happens next? Well, it's one of the most unexpected and moving accounts of God's love and mercy and compassion in all of the Bible. 
rather than leave Gomer to her life of prostitution and whoredom, Hosea buys her back. He goes and he buys her back and he forgives her. And he has mercy on her. And he speaks tenderly to her. And dear ones, this is a picture of who we are in our sin and who God is in his mercy. Christ did not die for respectable, nice, almost sinless people. He died for rebellious sinners. God could justly leave us to perish, but he shows us this kind of lavish grace. He grants us abundant mercy in and through his son. And, and so here in Romans 9, we are not meant to get caught up in philosophical debates about predestination. That's not intended to be the focus at all. No, the focus is on God's sovereign undeserved mercy for the unrighteous, for those who have whored after other lovers. Hosea chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Do you see the focus here? Not on our works, not on our approach to God, but on God's approach to us. Who are we? We are the slave who is standing there on the block being purchased out of our life of sin and rebellion. And the focus here is on the Lord and what He will do. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You shall know me. This is a work of sovereign grace, not of human works or ethnic privilege. And so God changes the names of these children who are representative of both elect Jews and Gentiles. He changes their names to reflect their new glorious status in Christ. And so Paul quotes Hosea 2.23 and chapter 1 verse 10 in Romans 9. Look with me again at Romans 9 verses 25 and 26. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Bible commentator Frank Thielman, he explains that, quote, just as in Hosea's time, God mercifully accepted an idolatrous and unjust Israel again as his people. So now he has turned Gentiles into recipients of his mercy. In both cases, those who were not his people because of their rebellion against him have become his people. They have also become God's beloved. And not just his beloved, but his beloved sons. It's an 
an echo, isn't it, of what we learned in Romans 8, that we are his adopted children in Christ who call out to Abba, Father. Dear ones, I have stated before that we have not a small sin problem, but a radical one. We have a radical sin problem that demands a radical grace solution. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work our way to heaven. Our strivings will not put us in a right relationship with God. We need supernatural grace. We are supernaturalists. We believe we need something outside of ourselves to save us. The, uh, the, the religion of the world is dig deep inside, look within yourself, and find that strength to, uh, to, to do the things you need to do and to consider yourself the way you need to be considered and to, and to love yourself and to, and to be happy. and just You need to look inside for these things. And, and we look and, and, and we, see, we see nothing but sin and contradiction. Oh no, we need that which is from without. We need something supernatural to rescue us from our sins and from what our sins deserve. We need a loving and a powerful Savior who will purchase us and save us out of spiritual whoredom. And God has provided a Redeemer and a Savior in Jesus Christ. He has purchased us with His own blood. He has forgiven us of our sins. He has given us His own robe of righteousness and restored us to fellowship with God. It's like the prodigal son whom the father sees from a far off distance. He's filthy. He's, he's, he's smelly of, of, of pigs and, and, and mud and dirt and sweat. And he comes back with nothing, hoping that his father will take him back in as a slave, as a servant. And the father embraces him and all of his stench, and all of his filth, and says, bring my robe, and bring shoes, and bring a ring, and put it on his finger, for my son is alive. And let us honor him with the fattened calf. Let us celebrate. This is the kind of grace that God gives to those who come to him by grace through faith. He has provided this Savior. He has purchased us with his own blood, and he's made us his beloved bride forever. Beloved, we deserve to be cast off. We deserve judgment for our sin, but God shows us mercy through Christ. Let me ask you this morning, have you received this mercy? Have you received this grace? Have you been trying to do salvation by cooperation? Have you been trying to strive your way, work your way to fellowship with God? It is impossible. And by trying to do so, you misunderstand grace. Grace is a gift. It comes through Christ. God has shown us mercy in Christ. Look to him. Receive him by faith. Turn from your sin. If you don't, you are still under his, his wrath. You are still not his people. You are still not his beloved. But those who are in Christ, by grace, who know him as Lord and Savior, who know him as their only hope for salvation, we who were once not my people are now his people. We who were once not beloved, 
and under his wrath and condemnation are now his beloved. He speaks tenderly to us, no longer with words of condemnation, but with words of love and kindness. This is God's sovereign grace in Christ, bringing sinners a glorious change in status. Paul also teaches here, this time from Isaiah, that not all but a remnant of Jews will be saved. So the focus was mainly upon Gentiles being included uh, in the first quote from Hosea. But now we come to Isaiah, and really the focus is on the Jews here. Look with me again at Romans 9, 27 through 29. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Again, whereas earlier the focus was on the sovereign mercy of God on the Gentiles, here the focus is on his sovereign mercy on the Jews. Paul quotes Isaiah 10, 22, and 23. In its original context, these verses speak of the remnant of Jews who will return from exile back to Jerusalem, from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. But this shouldn't be limited merely to a physical return. For even in its original context, in Isaiah 10, 21, it states that this remnant would return not just to a place, but to the mighty God, the mighty one. Paul, therefore, employs these verses to show that God, by his sovereign mercy, will save a remnant of the Jews, even as he has said he would do all along. Because of their cycle of idolatry, they deserved to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Completely destroyed. Completely leveled to the ground in judgment, fully and without delay. But God's mercy and faithfulness to his purpose of election would stand. A remnant of Jews would be saved. So, dear ones, the main thrust of this section is the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. Salvation rests ultimately not on us. If it did, none of us would be saved. If salvation ultimately rested upon us or even some kind of a partnership between us and God, there would be no hope for us. And we would go away from here dejected and looking forward only to an eternity in hell. But as it stands, salvation rests ultimately and completely upon God's sovereign choice, not ours. Salvation is not based upon ethnicity or good works, but upon the sheer grace of God. The majority of the Jews rejected God's Messiah and instead embraced a salvation by works. Paul is, from God's word in the Old Testament, explaining why this is ultimately the case. Also, what's being underscored here is that God's plan of salvation, his purpose of election, has always included the Gentiles. And that is what Paul is clarifying here. Has God's word failed? No. Is he unjust? No. Is he unfair? Absolutely not. Is he sovereign? Yes, he is. Is, is he just? Yes. 
Is he merciful to a sea of guilty sinners? Yes, he is. That's the point of this chapter. Again, it's not to get wrapped up in some philosophical debate about how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and his sin are both true, and yet they don't match up in our finite minds. We could talk about this all day. Both of these things are true. God is utterly sovereign. We are totally sinful and responsible in our sin. These two things are true. It's an antinomy, two truths which run side by side in the Bible, which have a hard time in our own minds understanding. But what we have here is a clear magisterial declaration of the sovereign grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. I love how R.C. Sproul puts it, quote, God never punishes innocent people, but he does redeem guilty people. He does not redeem them at all, excuse me, he does not redeem them all, and he is under no obligation to redeem any. The amazing thing is that he redeems some, unquote. He goes on to say, Sproul does, Paul could be no clearer that our election is not based on our running, our doing, or our willing. It rests ultimately upon the sovereign will of God, end quote. I am so thankful that God is sovereign and not some tyrant overseas. I'm so glad that God is sovereign and not any of us in this room. I'm so glad that God is sovereign and not some king or prime minister or president because none of these that I've just mentioned are omnipotent or omniscient or omnipresent or all wise or good, but God is. And here in Romans 9, beloved, we are reminded that God is God and we are not. Pharaohs, Caesars and French kings have sought to build kingdoms and palaces to exalt themselves and make themselves the center of the universe, making little of God and, and much of themselves, uh, if not forgetting God altogether. But this self-absorption is not only a problem for ru world rulers. It's a comprehensive human problem. It's a sin problem. Naturally, Naturally, we make much of ourselves and little of God, which is why many of us think that salvation is a partnership and that it's on our terms in some way. But here in Romans 9, we are gloriously confronted with the truth of God's sovereign mercy, His purpose of election. Look in Romans 9 and verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's, what, purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Here we are taught that there is hope for those who have been unfaithful to God, and stand guilty and condemned before his righteous throne. Here we are reminded that God's saving grace is purposed before time and is thus secure for all time in Jesus Christ our Lord. Dear Christian, dear Christian, the merciful God 
says to you this morning, you were not my people, but now you are my people. You were not my beloved, but now you are my beloved. You were once not my people, but now you are sons of the living God. And as sons of God, you are inheritors of all of his salvation blessings in Christ. God, our sovereign God, sent his son into this world to live a sinless life according to the law of God, doing that which we fail to do every day, doing that which Adam failed to do. But he didn't. He overcame temptation in the wilderness. He fought against and overcame temptation until the very end. And he went to the cross as a perfect substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. And he bore our sin on the cursed tree. And he bore God's wrath in our place on that tree. And he died because the wages of sin is death. And so he died. He, he, he endured those wages. And then And then on the third day, he rose again from the dead because he did not sin. He did not commit any evil and he could not justly be kept in the ground. And so he rose from the dead and in him we rise to newness of life. In him we are forgiven of our sins. In him we receive his righteousness. And so we stand before God no longer condemned but justified. And this salvation is not a sort of afterthought for God. It's that which has been purposed even before the foundation of the world. And oh, what a great salvation it is. All of these things are true of us because of God's electing love and his sovereign mercy in Christ. The one who purchased us back from slavery to sin and made us his very own bride. Beloved, it's this gospel truth that compels us to sing and to pray and to be devoted to the Lord, to evangelize, to love our spouse, to raise our children in the Lord, to obey God's commands. It is not a pounding of the fist and a guilt, fear-driven message that ultimately is going to make God's people healthy. Oh no, far from it. It is the gospel. It is this sovereign love, this Grace upon grace, which God's people will know forever and ever, that will compel us to want to live unto him with a heart of obedience and childlike love and faith. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you. We thank you for your amazing grace. We were once lost, but now we are found. We were once blind, but now we see. Not because we've done anything to deserve it, not because you, O oh God, looked through the corridors of time and, and, and saw us choosing you, and so you chose us. For, Lord, dead sinners cannot choose anything good. But, Lord, you set your sovereign love and affection upon us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and you caused us to be born again by your Spirit, and you gave us new life. And, Lord, what a comfort it is to know that we are saved by grace alone period, full stop. Lord, we pray that this news, this message would compel us to love and good deeds and, and thankful hearts. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.